From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week, this early August. We're into August now, August 1st. We're recording the show. will go up on August 2nd. Hosting with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Two of my longtime collaborators here on Wharton Moneyball, Audie Weiner, the third and final of the four co-hosts, is out this week. He will be back. We are in our slim down one-hour version, experimenting for the summer. You guys have comments and thoughts. Let us know. We are thinking about alternatives. We are playing with alternatives. For now, we're doing one-hour show. Going to open with a segment with open topics. We'll roll into an interview for the second half. We talked to Joshua Pope this week in our second half about p- pitching robots. They've moved from pitching machines to pitching robots. It's phenomenal what they've come up with. Fun half-hour conversation with Josh in the second half. Gentlemen, Tuesday afternoon, we're on Zoom as we usually are these days. And the two topics I think that are top for us are one World Cup, Women's World Cup, and then some baseball planning going on a baseball, but let's, let's hear about the women's world cup. The, the U S women advanced last night, middle of the night with a tie against Portugal. They eked out second place in their group stage. They've got a tougher first round of 16 match with Sweden. I think now yeah, than they would have Sweden. so uh, they, they have been wildly unimpressive so far. Everyone's kind of up in, I don't know. They're in the doldrums or open arms about how they have been playing. I will be honest, I haven't watched a lot of it, but I've been keeping an eye on things. And of course, now we're the knockout stages. So the 32 team feels down to 16. It's This is kind of the fun part. Any thoughts and what do we know analytically, if anything, about the play we've seen so far? Well, so a couple of things have concerned me. So this is what's interesting, actually. The one great thing about the group stage at the World Cup is that you have a, I mean, you sort of have a, a great control group because every team played every other team. Right. So we can actually. Well, within, within each group, you mean? Yeah, within each group. No, that's what I mean. I meant within a group. So we can say, well, the U.S. ended up second, but they would have really ended up ahead of, I think it was the Netherlands, if no, they played the same three teams. Yeah, so right, the U.S. Right. beat Vietnam 3 nothing. The Netherlands beat them 7 to nothing. Okay. <laughs> and so we've scored four goals in three games. Now, that's not good for World Cup soccer. And the part that surprised me was, um, I wasn't watching it live, but I woke up early this morning and I saw the U.S. came, you know, I I don't know the physics of it. I'm going to say two inches away from losing the game. There was a shot in the 92nd minute by Portugal. That matter of fact, what was great watching the highlights after the fact is, the Portugal coach started celebrating when the shot was in midair. He was convinced it was going in. It hit off the post, but it looked like it was going in. And the U.S. would have been out of the World Cup. Now, the U.S. women have never not gotten out of the group stage. Just to remind everybody, our listeners, they're the two-time defending champion yeah. of the World Cup. And the big uh, favorite of this one. And they're still. this is the part that surprises me still, is that – they're still a big favorite, at least according to the betting markets. And that's the part that surprises me a little bit because but Eric, you know, you're a momentum guy. You're all about momentum. I'm sure you am. I am. I am. But unless the women's world cup's different than the men's, well, isn't the world cup every four years? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. All right. So, and the number of overlapping players, I think the U S has 14 of its 22 or 23 players that have really? never been in the world cup before. Yeah. And so when you talk about momentum, yeah, if you're telling me, does Alex Morgan have some momentum? Yes. Megan Rapino actually didn't even play two games. No, 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 no. I don't mean momentum from last tournament. I mean momentum from group, group stage. Well, so, does, does this, well that, would suggest, that would suggest that they, they have no momentum. They've gone right. win, draw, draw. Oh, so it is. You are making a momentum argument. You're saying you would, you don't think there should be the favorites anymore given how poor they are. No, I, I don't want to – not even momentum – I, let me go back to my control group argument. They weren't the best team in their group. It's not obvious that Portugal, I mean, Portugal could have beaten them. Portugal's the first time ever they made it to the World Cup, the Women's World Cup. So it's not even momentum. I'm talking about a mean effect. I, there's no evidence yet 
that they're even the best team within their group of four. Forget about the other 12, 14 teams. You, you're, throwing the pri- you're throwing priors out. You don't think there's I'm not any. not talking about entirely. There's just way too much weight. And I don't think priors. The question is, what evidence are these priors based on? Yeah, if they're based right. on the past two World Cups, I would throw yeah, a lot. Yeah, I, mean, sure I, mean, I mean, I assume that, I mean, it's not like there's FIFA World Rank, you know. It's, yeah, it's, they'd be qualified. The, 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 the entire groups are set up relative to recent performance, not the previous World Cups, right? right you know, right, so, right, right. I mean, really, I, I think what you're, what the question is basically, and it would be kind of hard to calculate this in a, there's lots of complications to calculate this, but what we're really talking about is, is, I guess, performance relative to expectation in the group stage predictive of performance right. relative to expectation at the That's knockout right. stage. That's right. And obviously, you know, there's a huge selection bias there, right. Between the two populations and everything like that. But if you could kind of like, you know, I, like I just harken back and it's not quite the struggle that the U S had, but didn't, you know, didn't the last men's world cup start with like Saudi Arabia beating or tying Argentina or something like that. The eventual yeah, winners of the world. Well, cup. Yeah, it, that is true. But let me ask you a question, Shane. Why do you even, I'm not saying I disagree with your statement, but wouldn't your statement still be true if you got rid of with regard to expectation? Does performance in the group stage, how predictive of that is that of performance in the knockout stage? Let's even get rid of as compared to expectations because I would make the claim and the experts have made the claim. If you had to rank the teams right now based purely on performance in the group stage, the U.S. would be in the bottom half of the 16 teams based on performance so far. No priors, just performance in the group stage. Yeah, but I mean, it's kind of obvious you want to base an expectation into it because it's hard to like, you know, again, even defining what performs well. Like, let's say Morocco has a great group stage, amazingly, surprisingly, everybody, and then gets destroyed in the knockout stage. I mean... Does that is that really should that count as a very negative correlation? It would it would go in it would contribute to a negative correlation. But it's kind of like we're really kind of thinking about surprise again when we we frame this entire discussion with regards to the U.S. is because the U.S. made it through. I mean their performance in the group stage is more or less above above fifty percent above median. Right? They made it through. Well, in outcomes, you know, but but you're, you're, you're you're looking and like whinging and stuff, but I think that's because you can't get rid of your expectation. No, I, not. I mean, I can. I, I maybe I'm having trouble. I'm just having trouble with they beat maybe the worst team in the tournament three to nothing. They tied the other two teams in their bracket that are not one of the powerhouse teams, really. Yeah, but I mean, again, the groups are set up. The groups are designed to have a terrible team in every you know group except That's you true. know, but but it's but it's it, it's a very fair question that we're not calibrated for, yeah. which is how much you should be updating based on a soccer match. And now we have three soccer matches, and I think it's fair to say that I think a little updating would be appropriate, but I think it's probably easy to update too much. I found it interesting that our buddy Michael McCurdy, who you can find on Twitter, of course, he's a, he's a great analyst, but he's also a super interesting data visualization person and his his women's world cup data visits have been super interesting they're not like anything you've ever seen before and he's updating them of course as they go and presently his model this is just micah mccurdy but we like micah but his model you know everyone's like oh my gosh the they've got the swedes and it's they're still he's showing them still 56 this yeah 56 42 that doesn't add up quite right so there's a couple residual points there somewhere i think it's because maybe italy is in there but broadly u.s still pretty strong favorite over sweden according to micah now they're not as big a favorite as the netherlands are over italy which is what would have happened had they been able to come out first in their group i'm just pointing out that okay you read the articles and it's like oh my god they got to go through sweden what's going to happen and well maybe but the models are still saying they're going to be the favorite I think the I think the bigger concern is that their offense looks anemic. And matter of fact, you've yeah. studied this in football, Cade. One of the things I, I've taken away from the last nine years of us being together is certain and and you, Shane, for hockey, certain measures or statistics tend to have a lot of variation in them, and other things tend to be more stable. Mm-hmm. I believe offensive output, there is something about this team, and this is what the experts have been saying, that they can't finish. And so if that's a stable thing, that's going to be stable against Sweden and the other top teams. Doesn't mean they can't win. 
It just means that now you're in a tight game every game where one or two shots could make the difference in the game. Now that's maybe true in every game, but even more so. So I'm questioning, I think offensive, lack of offensive output is what concerns me the most. And if that's, I've, I've learned from the two of you, when Cade, you've talked about certain things in football and in Massey Peabody that tend to be stable and predictive over time. And, and Shane, you've talked about it in hockey. I think offensive performance in soccer could be one of those stable things. And they, that's why I'm concerned. Well, it, the statistically, if that's true, it's a it's a challenge because the expected goals numbers are looking something like you, know, you mentioned. They only have four goals in the in the group stage. I think the expected goals is something like eight. So they've been no, outplaying their opponents. But well, it's either finishing or luck. Or and this, this is something like yeah, exactly. We, can we parse this? And and Eric saying, well, you could at least study it over time to find out whether those deltas persist or not. The premise of expected goals is that generally they don't persist but some if there's there is skill in finishing we don't know what percentage it is and eric's saying well eric at least saying look there's a theory out there among analysts before this thing happened that this wasn't a strong finishing team and there's the stats have certainly backed that up so far um okay let's jump over to american baseball then and find out let's get a little update on what's going on around major league baseball right now well, it's a super exciting time. I mean, the trade deadline is, what, an hour and a half away, I think? It's at 6 p.m. today or 5 p.m. Eastern time today. Uh, so, I mean, think, think it's it's a very active day um, for, for kind of player movement today. And it's been a really exciting kind of couple of weeks because this is kind of the time where traditionally teams kind of decide what kind of moves they're going to make during the trade deadline. It's sort of, it's sort of like that post-All-Star break kind of, you know, the couple of weeks between the All-Star break and now are really kind of when teams – you know, that, are, you know, decide whether they're going to make a run or not. It's kind of interesting to sort of see kind of basically through the activities, which teams kind of decide, you know, think of themselves as buyers or sellers. I mean, the Mets are sellers, and that's not at all surprising given what they've done this season. But seeing things like the Angel, I mean, it's very encouraging to see the Angels decide to go for it as buyers, the Rangers, you know, a couple other teams that aren't out the Arizona Diamondbacks. You know, it's 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 pretty fun to see new teams in the mix, basically. Were you surprised by any behavior at the deadline? Uh, you know, we, early on, the, the, we were all surprised by the Angels, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Any other surprises on either side of it, buyers or sellers? Uh, I mean, for me, I guess um, I think the Mets being such big sellers. I mean, obviously, they've had a disappointing season and it's probably, you know, they were probably toast you know, for 2023 before this, but, you know, I mean, that, the, you know, they had Verlander for a couple of years, you know, I, the Mets have had a terrible season, but, you know, a half a season of bad luck doesn't say to me that this like incredibly, you know, you know, all-star sort of team can't, wouldn't be able to just sort of turn it around next year. So I don't, I don't know why the Mets of all teams necessarily have decided to sell. I'm a little surprised that the Yankees, famous buyers at every trade deadline, have uh, done very little. But man, the Yankees have been surprising me all season. By uh, yeah, it's just it's not gone well at all. Not to overfocus on the AL East as we usually do, but oh, I'm happy to. Let's talk about yeah. Orioles. Let's talk about those oh, Orioles. The Orioles, yeah, no, <laughs> incredible. And they they're they're buyers too. They just I think uh, uh, made it made a big trade. Eric, you're wearing Oriole orange today. Does that mean you're changing your allegiance? Are you chasing the front runners there? No, I'm not chasing the front runners, but the um, I, I actually watched a bunch of the Yankee Orioles games, and you know the Orioles are a young, exciting team, and again, um, they've got enough power, and they've got guys that can hit the ball. I just, you know, the as we were talking about off air, Shane's got it right. I mean, the Yankees, not just as their um, hitting, I, I think it's just ill conceived. They've just got too many batters that are hitting well below, let's even say 250, just well below. And then also right now, I mean, you know, if Garrett Cole wasn't on the team, the Yankees would be so far below 500. I mean, Severino, I just saw a pitch. Uh, I think he gave up. I, I Maybe I've never seen this. I'm Obviously, it's happened. It was 7 nothing with no outs in the first inning. Now, I don't know that I've ever seen that ever, and I've watched a lot of baseball games. Uh, seven he's nothing. given up seven earned runs in five starts this year. No, but Shane, this was in, this was in the first I know. inning. Wow. I know, I know. So <laughs> let me ask y'all. Yeah. Let me ask y'all a question. I mean, whenever teams spend the kind of money that the Yankees spend, this we also we've said this about the Padres. Uh, maybe the Padres are coming back a little bit, but they had the same kind of disappointment. The Mets we just talked mm-hmm. about. 
And then we see this much underperformance kind of across the roster. Can we start saying anything about whether it's just chance? It's just chance. You know, you're doing some bad draws. But whenever we see correlated chance across the roster, does that begin to say something about something that's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And I think the answer is probably very idiosyncratic, right? I mean, like it's a, one of the things that's amazing to me about the Yankees specifically, not to again overfocus on them, but the descri- I mean, obviously Aaron Judge is an incredible player and is one of the top three or four players in baseball. So yeah. his absence is going to have, a, you know, one of the largest main effects that you can have. But the interactions are like the fact that like once he left, like every single but everybody else like Not just kind of forgot how to hit. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me, given kind of how we usually think about and model baseball. Right. The other thing I would say, Kate, uh, to your question is I just looked it up while, while Shane was speaking. Um, the Yankees have a consistent trend. DJ LeMahieu, 35. Stanton, yeah. 34. Rizzo about to turn mm-hmm. 34. They got a lot of money invested. Yeah, the answer is that they got players. all quick, right? Yeah. People forget that pre-PED era, guys in their big sluggers, big men, these are all huge men, in their mid-30s, that's when the decline starts to happen. And the problem the Yankees have is, I think that's what, eight more years of Stanton? I mean, some no, big number of, that now. All right, but, yeah, six, yeah, yeah. five, some big number. More than, more than you want, <laughs> I think. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and so my comment is, this is what you were saying, Cade. They invested in guys at 30 years old with long-term contracts. We could debate whether they've gotten three great years out of all these players, and they have them for three plus more, and it ain't going to get better. All right. Well, that's that's some sober words coming from a big Yankees fan. I will give say, us- just to kind of give the Orioles credit, you know, because we talk, did talk about them, I saw the most amazing stat. The Baltimore Orioles have gone 235 games without being swept. Full swept, so, sorry. Like, they haven't yeah. been swept in a series. It's an old it's MLB plus- record. It's the yeah. MLB what? record for consecutive games without a sweep. Yeah, it's incredible. Previous record holders were like the 0405 Atlanta Braves, so... Not terrible company there. How do you, what do you, how they do you, have not been sweat since Adley Rushman was called up in May 2022. There you go. Isn't that it's an amazing stat? It's a Rushman effect. It's about the catcher. You get it. You do, so, how would you explain it though? Like, what does that say about a team? And we've only got a few seconds here, but I, they I, adapt I think, well, uh, they adjust well, they are they are they are multifaceted. They well? the, having flexibility to find different ways to win, like the Astros like do, that. where they can slug right. sometimes or they can just get on base. I think flexibility is pretty clutch. That's great. That's great. And by the way, the other stat I saw quickly was that they uh, have the best one-run record in the major leagues too. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, that's a different thing. We're going to give them more credit for the first than the second. All right, guys, um, I, you know, you're left, you leave me wanting to talk more baseball. We have to let it go for now. We are going to talk more baseball with our guest, Joshua Pope, in the second half. Come back and join us then. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, rolling into the second half now, second half being our interview segment this summer as we're debuting a, a slimmed down version of Wharton Moneyball, still in development, still under construction for the summer 60 minute show, second half being usually an interview segment. This is Cade Massey along with my longtime buddies and collaborators, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner out doing family Weiner things this week. He will be back. We are on now with Josh Pope. Joshua Pope is the co-founder and CEO of Traject. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Traject Sports. We're here to talk about what Traject Sports is. We have been relatively late to the game here. We've learned of these guys only this summer, but as soon as we learned about them, we had to go talk to them because gracious, if you've seen their product, it's fun and exciting. And we're glad you made some time for us today, Josh. Thank you. Appreciate you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So we're talking about what in previous days would have been called a pitching machine. I think Josh is going to say, hey, this thing's more than a pitching machine. We like to call it, what do you like to call it, Josh? To give us the full title here. Yeah, so it's Traject Arc, um, and it's a pitching robot in our mind. Uh, and the way we've designed our machine, or, or what you would think of as a conventional pitching machine, is in a way that we can actually replicate the exact pitch produced by any MLB or any tracked pitcher. 
Um, so yeah, there's 12 degrees of freedom, a lot of, I'd say over 14 motors in the system. And, uh, for us that, uh, crosses the boundary into robot territory. Okay. All right. Pitching robots. So I think they're to the outsider, there are two defining qualities first, just the visual is completely different. Um, you've got a screen that shows the picture and you, so you see the whole wind up or I'm presuming you can see a stretch if you want them out of the stretch. And so the batter has a much more natural response time. He can, he or she can be reading off of the picture, the wind up motion. And then the release point, this thing moves around. So you can actually, you can actually adjust the video. So the release point is realistic. Well, that's one feature. That's the obvious feature that jumps out. But then you're talking about being able to tailor the pitch according to what you know about a guy's pitches. Um, and you, and I, I read an article from 21 by Travis Sachek, which, you know, you should always read Sachek, but especially on this topic. And it's, um, he says that your initial idea really kind of came from TrackMan data where, where you realize, look, if we can, if we know what these pitches do, shouldn't we be creating, using those data, to create those pitches to train the batters? And so it's, you tell us what your degrees of freedom are. I said 12 degrees of freedom here. What are the different ways that you can shape a pitch? Yeah. So there's kind of four main uh, items that we look at or, or four uh, main variables. That's the release position, the release velocity, the release angular velocity or like the net spin and the spin direction um, and the ball's orientation. So each of those four items in the real world has three degrees of freedom or, or, or an X, Y, and Z uh, component to it. So that's why you get like the three times four. Um, and our machine controls actually 11 of 12 degrees of freedom. The only direction we don't control is moving the machine towards home plate. So that would be conventionally thought of as the release extension. Uh, but what we do do is take the uh, wheel-based machine and we move it left, right, up and down for the release position X and Z. So that's your release side, your release height. Yeah. And then we take a conventional pitch head, except we strap on a bunch of novel features, one of which being the ball feed mechanism, the ball hoppers that you know loads 100 balls in a carousel, drops one end at a time. There's a camera at the back and it reorients your pitch. So if you're doing a two seam or a four seam um, or messing with uh, around with seam shifted wake, you can actually program your pitch to be released from any configuration. Conventionally yeah. with a pitching machine, you drop a ball in and however you drop it in, yeah, it yeah. rolls a bunch and then it, it gets thrown out. Um, and then from the uh, hey, Josh, real, state real quick, side. On, do you, do you yeah. go anywhere without a baseball? Y'all don't know, but Josh just picked up a baseball, which was right in front of him and started rotating the seams as he talked to us. Do you go anywhere in life without a baseball these days? <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, I do a lot of travel to to see pregame sessions and and meet with our clubs and work with hitting coaches and players and and uh, always through airport security. I have two balls. One is the the Rawlings Pro Ball, and one is usually we have uh, we've integrated with the machine. What we call our Rawlings calls the L10 training ball, and um, it was funny. The first like ten trips, I could see every. Every time I go through security, I get stopped because the core of these baseballs is a is a cork pill, and they just didn't they couldn't identify it. Yeah. But in the past six to eight months, they stopped they uh, stopped stopping me at security. So I think that <laughs> I've traveled enough that the word uh, is out. Hang of things. All at right. least, uh, at least in the Toronto airport, they don't stop me as much. <laughs> well, they, they've probably got you pretty well profiled at this point, Josh. Josh is based yeah. out of Toronto, from Toronto. Um, and let's just say before we go any further that this isn't just a, a hacker's garage project. It might have started that way in some way, but they are well into the MLB now and beyond into Japan as well. I think you had something like seven machines out or seven adopters anyway. Last year, you're up to 14, 13, 14 this year, and they've moved beyond their major league parks down into the minor system. So, I mean, you're talking about pushing half the league. How has that gone for you? And critically, wh what are you hearing back from teams as they start using this machine? Yeah, so those numbers are all correct. We have 25 net machines in the field distributed across 14 teams. Um, in 2021, we released our first prototype and we received a lot of great feedback. 
Uh, one of which is how important the timing of the projector is with the release. Cause that's the cue that every batter gets to do all of their loading off of. Right. Right. Um, all the swing decisions happen within 400 milliseconds from release to the ball reaching home plate. And only a portion of that is uh, actually interpreted by the batter because their brain takes some time to process these signals and then, you know, implement the biomechanics. So timing is critical. I think we've known that for a while in baseball, uh, we polish that down and have sub frame level control. So we actually have teams specify exactly what video they want to see and the exact frame that they want the ball to come out of. And so there's, pretty much an advanced video editing feature that that comes embedded with the web portal that connects you to the robot. Uh, and I think across those 25 machines, we have over uh, 6,500 videos uploaded. So that's wind up and stretch of various pitchers, various different pitch types. Um, and as new players get added to rosters, uh, new pitchers get added to the uh, database for each of these clubs as well, which is, which is interesting. But yeah, generally the feedback has been uh, extremely positive. Out of the seven teams that were adopters in 22, five of them added one or more machines to their player development complex out in spring training. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a team purchase, or, or I should say lease, we offer our machines on a leasing model, lease uh, five machines. Um, and we've seen widespread adoptions through through the organizations that were early. Um, and even teams that are inquiring today are looking for more than just one uh okay. machine okay. how kind of uh adaptive in real time is the robot like can you do it sounds like it's it's still a little bit of work to kind of like be like oh we want a particular pl- you know picture with a particular release point can i say something like oh i want to simulate an entire at bat from pedro martinez which would be a mix of flat fastballs and change-ups or is that something like, is that something you can just kind of like, if you had it, Pedro Martinez already in your like software system, could you just roll that out in real time? Or would that take a lot of kind of manual curation? Yeah. So normally what, what we've done, Traject is build a portal, uh, a web app. You go online at trajectsports.app and you can log into your machine and into your uh, uh, account. And what we've seen most teams do is create a folder uh, for every uh, team. And within that folder, you have starters and relievers, and they normally label, uh, label their folders by, by pitcher. And you have the specificity that you can take an exact previous at-bat and upload those exact pitches with the correct release slot, oh my with God. the oh my correct God. plate location, with the correct movement data. You can do that level of specificity, but the Hawkeye data won't be available the same night as the game, it'll be available the next day. So there is a little bit of damp, like lag time with when the data is available from Statcast. So hold on, hold on, that, hold on. You got to stop accept- there. That's just we have to stop there. That's just so ridiculous. And and it, what have you heard from people? Because now you're saying a guy can get struck out on Tuesday night by a particular guy in a particular inning on a particular set of pitches, and the next day he can take that same at bat according to your model, according to your machine, that will, one, it's a phenomenal idea. It's fantastic. To what extent does, do they feel like with the people who have put themselves in that situation, to what extent do they feel like it actually replicates the, the at bat? I know we're talking yeah, to the, I mean, the founder and the chief sales, but yeah, I get yeah. that. I get that. I get that. But all <laughs> the same, let me ask the question. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would say that we have very avid users at each of our clubs. Uh, on average, six to seven players on each team use this regularly as a tool, usually prior to the game. It's one thing to say, look, um, you know, Scherzer got me on that, that curveball and it was nasty at a 22 inches of vertical break and I want to see it again. And, you know, maybe if you're divisionally and it's an ace, you might go ahead and do that. But a lot of times, uh, at least MLB players are forward thinking. They're trying to get, you know, uh, an understanding of the timing of an opponent coming up. They're not really often dwelling on at-bats unless it's like an hour after the game. What we've seen a lot of is someone gets kicked out of a game and they're all hyped up and ready to play. And they they want to take 120 swings off traject because they're a little bit fed up. These are all-stars around the league. And, and what we're hearing from certain coaches is like, we couldn't, we couldn't get them off the machine. We're telling them to go home. They, they're, they're just loving using it. So uh, for those players, do you have it's like not, a, it's not a tool to, 
Sorry, you need extra it. flexibility where they have like the release of regular, you know, bad pictures, but like the video of Angel Hernandez or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to get them a little more hyped up and amped up to hit. So, uh, yeah, it's, that's uh, we're hearing a lot of that. Yeah. So, Josh, I was just wondering, um, I would think if I were a potential client of a product like this, I would want some sort of, I don't know, let's call it randomized experiment or something that compares, let's call it the non-robotic option to the human option and basically show it either has greater efficacy, same efficacy, worse efficacy, or whatever it's going to show. What have you guys done from a, let's call it proof of concept and using statistical principles, whether it's, you know, randomized experiments, experimental design, what types of outcomes do you look at, et cetera? Yeah, and in the early days, it was a lot proving that the trajectories we replicated matched one-to-one with the intended trajectory. So like validation on the efficacy of the tool uh, insofar as we could claim that we're replicating pitches. So that's, you know, what's the standard deviation of the speed, the spin, the plate location. And we have a lot, a lot of data collected there. And we've cross-referenced with Rapsodo we're partnered with, with TrackMan, with Hawkeye, the bullpen units. And we have a whole bunch of data there and with varying degrees of um, measurement error based on the system that you choose to use. And, and uh, we're really happy with those results. And actually with the lease of every one of our products, we actually have tech specifications that, that specify exactly how good we can control your speed and spin to three-dimensional spin access. Um, so it's something like, you know, within one and a half miles per hour, and 250 RPM. Um, and that corresponds to about four inch standard deviation at the plate. So we're really happy with that. But I think more along the lines, what you're getting at is how do you know if I'm a GM or if I'm a, um, a scouting director, or if I'm a hitting coach around the league, how do we know that using Traject is, you know, more, more beneficial to the organization or more beneficial as a pregame tool than, you know, hitting off a tee, doing soft toss or hitting off a conventional pitching machine. Um, and that's where we are, we are kind of a little bit tighter lipped just based on some of the confidentiality we have with our clubs on what data is collected and how it's stored. Um, but what we can say is, uh, we track the number of runs generated, uh, off opponent pitchers where the arc is used. Um, and what we try to do is because the arc is always used at a home stadium, it's not super portable. It's a fixed installation in a lane. You're getting all of the runs generated usually at home games versus away games, which has a small bias. So we're, we're trying to do our best to remove all the other conflating variables to, to, you know, determine how many additional runs are scored, uh, in the first three innings using the arc versus not using the arc. Um, and that's like something that we internally track to, but not something we've published or, or made publicly available as of yet. Okay. I'm going to ask a clarifying question on that Shane's trying to get in. Let me just clarify on this one because the way you're, well, one, your first answer was setting aside outcomes. We can provide objective measurements of whether we're doing what we say we can do. And so that alone, you know, that you're probably going to do better than other pitching machines, given your ability to do that, just our priors would suggest that, but then you go past that and answer Eric's question about outcome differences. And what you focus on is home first three innings. So that suggests that the principal advantage, or at least the one you're choosing to measure here is in prep for a particular pitcher. And and I, I, so it's, it's specific to a pitcher as opposed to general batting training. Is that the way you think, how, how, how much general benefits would go to a batter from working with machines like this versus it really is focused on who you're going to face tonight or tomorrow. Yeah. I think one of the reasons we focus on specific pitchers is the widespread adoption initially was with major league clubs because of the price point, like building a robot with 14 uh, motors and the complexity that is required to replicate human pitching is, is costly from a pure materials and motor control perspective and GMs taking a risk looking for ROI, see the largest ROI um, providing this tool to major league players who are paid millions of dollars a year to, to see outcomes. And that's kind of why we, we have more data, at least in 2022, when we started measuring this, we had more data on usage by 
uh, MLB players. That being said, um, this year, between April and the end of July, the stadium units use on average or have thrown on average 8,000 pitches. So that's something like 150 pitches before each game. Whereas the player development complexes, spring training units, have thrown 40,000 pitches between uh, the start of spring training, which is, let's say, Feb 1 or sometime early Feb, uh, to July 31st. That's five times the amount of pitches are being thrown at spring training compared to the home stadium. And what we can what we can say about the spring training units is that hitting at game speed is challenging, right? It takes a lot. It's, it takes a large toll on you know your your body, your mental, your mentally need to be dialed in. If you know you're looking at someone like Chapman throwing over a hundred or any other pitcher in the league that's throwing with heavy heat. Um, you kind of need to ramp up into it. You got to start with 70, 75, maybe do some bat flips first, maybe you're off the tee and then you're leveling up. What we see a lot of times with the spring training units is that a new prospect can use it. Someone who's being placed at a, uh, a minor league affiliate can use it. Someone during rehab who's ramping up, getting back into game speed can use the machine. And instead of having the specificity of replicating an exact pitcher, we have embedded 15 generic pitchers with varying levels. So some collegiate level play, um, some low A, some high A players that come out of the box useful with the arc um, that we've made available through player cards. And we're seeing, as I said before, five times more usage there. So Mm -hmm. one of the things we were able to measure early with all these clubs and LV stadiums was the results off, you know, specific pitchers, which we knew teams were using to practice against before the game. But we have five times more data to now make more widespread conclusions onto the general efficacy of how, how is this affecting yeah, launch angles or hard hit average, et cetera. Your talk about generic pitchers kind of, you know, it's kind of what I would want to ask about in, in the sense that like, I mean, I think as a teaching tool, being able to kind of replicate the same, just the same type of pitch, like a curveball or something like that over and over again, has got to be super instructor for batters. One amazing proof of principle you could have is why aren't, why aren't you got? Why aren't robots pitching the home run derby, for example? There, you're just like literally the exercise to just produce the same meatball, like you know, however many, like two hundred times in a row, you know. And we're just kind of adding variance to it to it by having different pitchers pitch to different you know hitters, etc. That Rush, I, I you should like know. You should know that demonstration Shane, of the methodology. You know, you should know that Shane wants to automate as much as possible in baseball. So this is just wow. a new riff on the umpire thing that we hear from him on occasion. <laughs> it's, it's almost like we want consistency in certain that. things. I don't know. Well, to Shane, your point, like I think it would be great to do engagement with the MLB and at the All Star Game. I think another use case would be at the Combine. You're trying to evaluate sure. players. Mm-hmm. Uh, internationally, and sometimes you have to fly them over, and sometimes you make investments in players when you only have results against a certain league that they're in, and maybe the quality of pitching isn't you know level internationally. I think one of the things that we foresee being valuable about uh, about Traject is creating standardized data uh, on batter outcome against certain levels of pitchers. So if I'm in high school, maybe seeing collegiate level pitchers and and collecting data on them. If I'm in college and I'm trying to get drafted, maybe having a database of everyone's performance against a standard level pitcher, and now you can normalize the playing field and and could be used as a scouting tool. So I think that's one of the areas that not only internally do we believe, but it seems like um, the the clubs that have adopted machines are interested in as well. Uh, we've had a few clubs reach out to us about adding a machine to their um academy out in the Dominican where they're doing a lot of this analysis and instead of you know taking data from all these different leagues and trying to determine you know who's who's the most valuable to the club uh you can you can normalize some of that so uh whether it's the the home run derby derby or scouting I think normalization is is a huge thing uh for player evaluation Mm What about um, extending into, so you're still talking, when you're going to the Dominican, you're still talking about selling to Major League Baseball. How long until you're selling into NCAA teams, for example, already yeah, probably think, talking to these people? How long until you have some penetration into that market? My guess is 2025. Um, right now, we're really focused on creating not only hardware for MLB, but also 
all the reporting and tooling and shuffling pitches yeah. and adding new data and, uh-huh. and all of these different modes with our existing clientele. So our team is quite busy. Um, one of the, the areas that is slightly prohibitive for college right now is you need, uh, you need to have both like a video and data department and an operator for the traject. And uh, we're working on ways to, to package the data such that when clubs purchase a machine, it comes embedded with, you know, ready to use out of the box. But this is something that, that uh, at least at the MLB level, uh, requires a lot of customization or is desired to have a lot of customization. So you can get that yeah. specificity. Um, so I think, I think like as our team focuses on, you know, hopefully getting penetration with 22, 23 machine, uh, 20, 22 to 23 teams next year, if not all, all clubs, but in 2024, it'll open up some space for us to think about how can we pare down the technology, maybe make it a little bit more affordable um, to D2 and D3. I think there's some D1 clubs that it would be within budget, but um, would be a separate focus area for a software team to integrate all of the collegiate baseball and all the collegiate video as well. Yep. I was just going to build on Shane's question about the home run derby. I would think a massive market here would be in in evaluation. Why don't we take out the variation that's because of the person pitching the ball, have the machine pitch the ball, and then we can actually remove, I I would imagine if we did, you know, in statistical terms, if we did an analysis of variance of the variation in, in, in performance evaluation, a significant fraction would come to the randomness of the pitcher. Why don't we just eliminate that? Is, is or, that a potential? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Shane. Or just to piggyback on that, Eric, or or you you might want as a teaching learning tool to increase the variance, you know, like maybe a, a particular hitter hasn't seen enough of like, you know, a more extreme curveball in the particular league they've come up in, and you actually want to well, see I, how yeah, they I do would, under a series of pitchers they haven't experienced before. No, no, you've talked about a different way. You've talked about – so why don't Josh, you answer. My question was about if I have two players and I say they both can't hit the curveball, well, maybe one can't hit that person's curveball, but the other person can. Now, Shane's also talking about for training and evaluate for training. Why don't I have someone see a thousand different kinds of pitches, which the machine can easily deliver, and then we can actually improve their game? Player evaluation is certainly a massive area of use, even for our clubs. They have players that they've invested through signing bonuses or or are holding on to for a few years to help them develop and they're in spring training it's a time where you can kind of place your players at the right level of play and i think one of the reasons why we saw over 1500 pitches per day per machine at spring training versus our standard you know 100 to 200 pitches is related to that exact exercise a lot of clubs will put our machine at our full setup in a lab where they also do biomechanics simultaneously and they merge the the uh pitch the 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 normalized pitch data which you know is repeatable and the same to everyone with their swing mechanics with the swing plane how they're approaching different pitches um and they use that they export all this data and create kind of uh, a reporting tool or comparison tool um to to help them in that selection process one of the things that we think is important too is that there's probably a, a certain number of bats that you want to see at each level before someone's ready to advance. And how can you actually speed up the career, the the career progression of a given batter by exposing that batter to uh, an accelerated pace of play, right? You now don't have to wait three years to see three years of pitching. You can actually see that in an accelerated manner and, and try to mm-hmm. funnel out who's adapting at what rates to to mm-hmm. the increased level of pitching. And that's something mm-hmm. that um, not only are, are we catching on to, but a lot of times when we put product out in the field, we're learning why it's so valuable as we hear feedback from hitting coaches. And that's one of the areas that we're hearing um, uh, uh, back from on. And, and to the second point on um, providing or targeting people's weaknesses, right? You have a certain player that can't hit the curveball or can't hit a tall lefty uh, slider uh, or, or whatever it may be. Uh, you can see as many reps as you need of any given pitch type from any release slot. I think it's one thing to, to say, wow, your machine can replicate any pitch, but where you see the most gain as a batter is focusing on where you're getting beaten a lot. And we have, we have specific hitting lists made for batters that just focus on plate discipline. 
that just focus on a specific pitch type that they're uncomfortable with or specific release lot. I know a lot of righties uh, don't love it when you have someone like Sergio Romo throwing all the way out from the side that feels like his slider is coming in from behind you. And it's actually hard to get depth perception, right? Um, and uh, you can actually make the machine do that and, and stand in on as many pitches as you want. We're kind of piggybacking off of the times to the order effect where, you know, you've seen 10 to 15 pitches off a given opponent pitcher and all of a sudden averages increase. So what happens if it was your hundredth of pitch before you actually mm-hmm. entered the game? And that's, that's one of the effects we're trying to piggyback off of. Right. I mean, so much about expertise is reps. I mean, learning depends on reps and feedback. And so you're standardizing reps and they're, I mean, it's just fundamental to improvement. A couple of final questions before we have to cut you loose. And I feel like you're one of these guests we could talk to for a long time, but a couple questions. One is, can you at all characterize what it is about a club that leads them to be interested in this. So you had seven early adopters last year. You've got half the league now without naming names. What would you say are the key organizational factors that lead to adoption of this particular technology? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think across the league, you have organizations that focus R&D budgets or player development budgets in different areas um, I think historically, if you're a team that made an investment in biomechanics technologies for tracking, you know, pitcher biomechanics during the game or, or in the lab, and you already had a lab set up and were, were inclined to use technology as a player development tool would be one area. I think another area would be sometimes just a, a, a deep playoff run that exits early. Uh, and a specific ace was was really troubling for your batters, oh, and wow. you're like, why why was this so hard? Why was it so hard to hit off Max Freed? I think that was a uh, he was he was pretty incredible in that 2021 uh, uh, Braves Braves title, and uh, we had we had a few teams come in just being like, what's what's so difficult about his pitches? <laughs> um, so they just wanted to see it, and then once you come in and see it. Uh, I think that that 2021 off season, we had eight teams come and see the machine, seven of which converted, right? So it was, it was one of those things that if we could get you to fly up to Canada and cross the border and you had a yeah. demo, we were likely to convert. The, the eighth team actually is now an adopter. They just couldn't get the budget for that year. Right. Um, so right. There's, there's various things that could be the impetus for, for an investment in, in pitch replication. But I think, you know, some teams want to be, um, known as forward thinking and, and be ahead of the curve on technology. Some teams actually use Traject as a tool to um, incentivize players to sign with their organization, um, especially in the early days. Like if you come play with team our team, well, you get to use this this cool machine that no one else has. And and in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, that was that was definitely real, right? Um, and international scouting was affected by it. Um, come, come hit off, you know, come, come play for our team. We, we can actually show you what Verlander looks like before the game. Yeah, I mean, right. that's, uh, that's an enticing thing to hear, uh, when, when your compensation is directly tied to your performance and, and, uh, a lot of players were, were, were really happy to see that insofar as we've actually had quite a bit of reach out from players on clubs that do have machines saying that. They want one for their home in the off season, or they want one for the training facility that they use during the off season. So uh, that's been, uh, that's been pretty cool as well. All right. Uh, last, well, funny you mentioned Verlander. I, I would say the Yankees need it, but they probably already have it given the trade that happened today, but I don't know, maybe not. Maybe the Yankees aren't going to go that far uh, in the playoffs. So maybe it's not relevant to those guys. New question. Final question. How have the pitchers responded to this thing? Who's is anybody is anybody whinging at you, given the tool that you've developed? We had a, a Cy Young nominee who, on initial install date, was not too happy. But uh, <laughs> but we we smoothed it over. I think initially we've we've had reactions on both sides. We've had pitchers that are like, "This is the coolest thing ever. I've never seen my change up from a batter's perspective." Can I stand? Please put me on the machine. I want to see myself. Um, One of the other aspects of the machine is is pitch design. So you can program, you know, Jordan Romano, let's stick with the Jays, 
Um, just as an example, you could program his, his, his four seam, you could program his slider. Um, but you can also take that pitch data and press edit pitch and an edit pitch. You could change the seam orientation by 10 degrees. You yeah. could change the spin axis by 10 degrees or 200 or 500 RPM and actually observe how that affects yeah. the trajectory. Yeah. And as a pitching coach, you could say, Hey, Jordan, if we work on, on your grip, or if we work on your, your, um, your, your pitches or your slider, your fastball, whatever it is, and we're able to see a gain of 200 RPM, that's going to result in a, uh, two inches of break at the plate. And there's a real incentive now for pitchers to, to work, to work towards, um, you know, creating a more deceptive pitch because they can see what that result will look like before they actually Amazing. make those changes. Yeah, and uh, we've had a lot of, I don't yeah, That's great. But presumably there are models that could have told them, you know, like what, what's the margin that they could work on that would make the biggest difference, but then it would still just be theoretical for to be able, they could actually go stand in the box and see like what they're doing now versus what happens if they make this tweak. It's really, yeah. really remarkable. Yeah, like, Josh, we got to let you go, too, right? man, like, but thank you. Thank <laughs> you for the time. Hope to talk to you more. We didn't even get into, we, we don't really talk business very often, but your story actually raises lots of interesting business questions. The cost of this sounds like expensive to do. You had got capital from somewhere. You've made a decision to lease rather than sell. That's an interesting decision. So lots of entrepreneurial type stuff behind there, but we'll have to call it a day for now. Thank you for making time for us. I appreciate for having me on. Thank you all. Absolutely. Josh Pope, Traject Sports co-founder, CEO. They have created a pitching robot that has about 50% penetration into the MLB. And it feels like that's just the beginning. That has been a full hour of Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM for the whole team. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, they've been with me through the whole thing. For Adi Weiner in absentia. For our boss man, Matty Das. For our associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Dion, we love you. Thanks for all the help. For you guys for listening. Appreciate it. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Oh,